It's my pleasure to welcome you tonight for a discussion and debate on the war on terror and the federal courts. Uh, we have the distinct pleasure of having uh, two of the leading scholars in the country on constitutional issues and on the federal courts and on war powers, uh, Jesse Chopper and John Yu. Uh, let me introduce them very, very briefly. Uh, I call Jesse Chopper Dean Jesse Chopper because while I was at Bolt Hall, uh, he was the Dean of Bolt. Um, <clears throat> he shares uh, with many others some small credit uh, for the founding of the Federalist Society because he was a clerk to Chief Justice Pearl Warren uh, back. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when I was practicing, I said Charles Evans Hughes, so uh, I got that corrected. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, and uh, we, are, we are delighted to have uh, Dean Chopper with us tonight. Uh, John Yu is uh, a younger scholar and has quite a bit of notoriety from his time in the government uh, with the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, a modern, uh, he may be a modern equivalent uh, in legal circles of Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And when <coughs> President Lincoln um, met Harriet Beecher Stowe during the Civil War, he said to her, so you're the little lady who got this all started. <laughs> well, uh, Professor Yu is not a little lady. He's a formidable uh, legal mind uh, and has written extensively on issues of uh, the war power and on federal courts. Uh, so without further ado, um, I will let these gentlemen begin their discussion. Um, we should go probably about 40 minutes with them, and then we'll open it up for questions. So I give you uh, Professor Yu and Dean Chopper. Thank you. Well, I'd like to uh, thank you for that nice uh, introduction. Um, and I'm really glad that you all chose to come here tonight. I know you were all thinking about going to the uh, John Carey and Teresa Hines Carey lecture at the City Books and Lectures at the same time tonight. So uh, I'm glad you I know it was a difficult choice. I'm glad you all chose this instead. Um, Jesse and I are going to uh, talk about uh, the Military Commission Act. And uh, this comes from a dialogue that we both wrote uh, together for the California Law Review that is supposed to come out in May of 2007, so you'll probably see it in January of 2008 uh, in print. And it's, uh, it's an effort to sort of re resurrect or restore the idea of writing a Socratic dialogue between two people um, about this basic question of the power of the courts to review uh, federal questions and the power of Congress to remove it. Before I get started, though, I want, I, you all heard the introduction of Jesse, but I, I wanted to make a just a small, small point about how this article came about. Um, many of you in law school probably wondered what goes on in faculty lounges. And what happened in this case was Jesse kept asking me questions about the Military Commission Act, which he had assumed I had written, which I had not. Um, but I kept trying to answer them, and Jesse wouldn't let go of these different points. So I just said, really just to get him to stop asking me questions, I said, Jesse, let's just write an article about it so you don't have to keep asking me questions every day. And he actually took me up on uh, the proposition, unfortunately. Um, and so the article really is, had its gestation just in he and I arguing when we were reading in the newspapers and then getting a copy of the act trying to figure out what it did. The other thing uh, I'd like to say about Jesse before I start is uh, many may not know this, but Jesse is also an inveterate horse race 
gambler and was just nominated by the governor to be on the California Horse Racing Commission, which I'm told is the most powerful agency of state government after the office of the governor. <laughs> After the event, he'll be taking bets, and I'm sure he'll be able to give you very good odds. So uh, let me uh, start just by describing the uh, historical background, and the format we're going to try to pursue is to have, rather than me stand up and speak for 20 minutes and Jesse stand up and speak for 20 minutes, is to actually break it up issue by issue and maybe talk for only a few minutes about each one back and forth rather than a set speech. Uh, but this is a debate about the Military Commission Act. Let me just give you a brief historical background for those who don't know. So uh, after um, the 9-11 attacks, uh, President Bush established a detention facility at Guantanamo Bay to which people captured in the war on terrorism and the war in Afghanistan were sent. Uh, several of the detainees brought habeas corpus and other lawsuits in federal court to try to win their release. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a case called Razul versus Bush, uh, found that it did have the jurisdiction to hear cases brought by enemy combatants for their release. Uh, the Congress responded in what was called the Detainee Treatment Act, passed in 2005, which held that uh, courts would not have jurisdiction over Guantanamo Bay, and recognizing the creation of an alternate court system, uh, one at the, end, at the trial level called the Combatant Status Review Tribunals, which would then have the right of appeal to the D.C. Circuit to test the legality of detention. The Supreme Court, in a follow-on case, then said, no, that uh, statute cannot apply in cases where people already got their cases into the courthouse door before the passage of the statute. It held that the statute was only prospective and not retrospective, which effectively allowed the court to examine the habeas corpus rights of every detainee at Guantanamo Bay because all of them had already brought lawsuits. The Supreme Court responded again in the Military Commission Act that we're talking about. I'm sorry, Congress responded again in the Military Commission Act that was just passed in October of 2006. The Congress said the jurisdiction that you no longer have is not over just over future cases, it's over all past cases. And uh, Congress also create, codified the rules for military trials for some subset of the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. So that's the historical background. And I'll just start my uh, opening salvo just by saying, uh, to me, it seems that the court stripping jurisdiction, I'm sorry, Congress stripping jurisdiction of the courts is really just an effort to restore the law to the way it was before 2004. Before 2004, the federal courts had never heard a case in habeas corpus or any other kind of federal cause of action by an enemy combatant who was held outside the United States. The only exception to those cases were American citizens who always have the right to challenge the detention by their government whenever they're held or wherever they're held. But enemy prisoners who are fighting against us in war have never had that right of access to the court system. So I think what was uh, the revolutionary change was not Congress's activities but the court for the first time saying, no, we're going to exercise that kind of jurisdiction, which is traditionally used, for the most part, uh, in the criminal process to test the legality of criminal prosecutions and convictions. And it was, then you've had this two-year uh, go-around between the courts and Congress, where the, courts have been the Congress has been trying to change the rule back 
to what it was before the Rasul decision I mentioned in 2004. I think it's perfectly within Congress' powers to correct mistakes and errors by the Supreme Court in the way, after all, it's reading Congress's original statute. So that I'll turn it over to Jesse. Okay, we're going to go back and forth, as he said, but I, I want to open by saying I'm, I'm, I'm not a member of the Federalist Society, but I have spoken at Federalist Society events. I don't know, when did, when did the Federalist Society start? I think I was at the second or third one at Northwestern University. It must have been the early 80s. Is that about right? 82. It started in 82. And uh, uh, I have always found uh, that the programs that the Federalist Society puts on nationally and at Bolt Hall, where we have a very active chapter, uh, uh, are first class in every respect. Uh, so uh, I'm always happy to do this. Now, I want to say a word about uh, John mentioned you know, the, the origins of this uh, article. So what we didn't tell you is uh, that this is his area, not mine. Uh, and uh, as I said, to, uh, we were talking about this the other day. He says, why are you uh, preparing this uh, so much? I said, because I don't know so much about it. He says, ah, he says, you know more than 99% of the people in the country. I says, yeah. I said, but you're in the 1%. <laughs> so he said, yeah, I like it that way. <laughs> so I, I just want to make one general point. This question of the reach of federal habeas corpus is dependent, the, the decisions at least to this point have more or less made it dependent on the statute, on, on the statute. So when, when, you, when we say, well, habeas corpus extends to, it means that is the way the court has interpreted the statute, and that was also true in this case. The, the extent to which the Constitution may require any of these things is largely uncharted territory, all right? So the, the, the law always was that, a federal, that the federal courts have habeas corpus jurisdiction uh, over anyone who's detained, uh, within the, quote, sovereign territory of the United States. By the way, if I make any mistakes, I assure you, he'll fix them up, uh, un unless they're in his favor. Uh, but but uh, it, it, it always extended to, uh, so, for example, the Second World War, the, the case of Yamashita, the Japanese general tried in the Philippines. In the American court-martial, he brought a writ of habeas corpus, he lost on the merits, but they they uh, accepted they accepted his uh, writ because the Philippines was an American possession and it was within the sovereign territory of the United States. Okay, uh, it is not true in my judgment uh, that uh, the, the, the court uh, needed any correction. I thought the court you know, it made a tiny move, but it ha what it held in effect was uh, that Guantanamo was the functional equivalent, if you will, de facto within the sovereign territory of the United States uh, because of the uh, lease agreement, and I, I quote from it, which gave the United States, quote, complete jurisdiction and control uh, of the, uh, uh, this, this is a lease uh, for in perpetuity. That's a long time. And with the total power to exclude Cuba from the uh, property. Uh, so uh, Cuba's respected uh, that. So the, the, the notion was this is, it may not be de jure sovereign territory. Cuba owns it. Uh, but with ownership like that, it seemed to me it was de facto. So uh, I, I think the big move 
made by Congress was in the two statutes that we're talking about, and that was to try to take back jurisdiction, which in my judgment uh, was effectively always, effectively, always there under the, uh, under the federal statute. That's actually the shortest I've ever heard Jesse speak at one time. So, <laughs> I'm going to go back and tell everybody on the faculty that you can speak with them in two minutes. They'll never let you speak at a faculty meeting again. So let me just uh, respond briefly to this point about Guantanamo Bay uh, before arguing actually on Jesse's uh, ground. First, uh, Cuba does own uh, Guantanamo Bay base and could kick the United States out. We might be able to sue it for damages, just like you would with a breach of contract, but it's not as if the territory belongs to us. There's also a case that's very similar that the Supreme Court decided at the end of World War II called Johnson versus Eisentrager, where the United States uh, detained and then ultimately tried by military court uh, and convicted and imprisoned on a German, an American military base in occupied Germany. And in that exact case, again, these uh, detainees got all the way to the Supreme Court seeking a writ of habeas corpus. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, this is outside the territory of the United States. We're not going to hear a habeas corpus petition. If you want to talk about effective jurisdiction and control, the United States' authority in Germany in 1950 was much greater than what it is in Guantanamo Bay Base today. The nation of Germany did not exist in 1950. If you may, those of you who made World War II buffs may remember, that the government of Germany was extinguished at the end of World War II, and the United States was the effective sovereign in the American occupied zone of Germany until the United States and its allies allowed uh, Germany to restore itself as a nation. I don't think there's much difference factually between the Eisentrager case and what Guantanamo Bay is today. I think the Supreme Court just decided to change the rule. Uh, that's its prerogative. I do think, though, that Let's accept uh, Jesse's reading of the statute. It's still the case, it seems to me, that the court has, a, I'm sorry, Congress has a jurisdiction, I'm sorry, authority to control the jurisdiction of the federal courts. If, the, if Congress wants to limit the jurisdiction of the federal courts over certain classes of cases, it has that authority. It exercises that authority during the Civil War. In a case that's a little bit like this one. In the Civil War, there's a case called Ex Parte McArdle, where uh, a person held by Union authorities after the end of the Civil War um, for uh, insurrection, attempting to overthrow legitimate government, was detained. He was a citizen on American territory. He brought a writ of habeas corpus. He got all the way to the Supreme Court. He argued his case. In between the argument of the case and the final decision, Congress passed a statute saying there's no jurisdiction in the, federal, in the Supreme Court over this case. And the court, in the case called Ex Parte McArdle, then held that it had no jurisdiction and authority to hear that case and dismissed it. It seems to me, even if you want to portray the case the way Jesse has, that still leaves a question, I think settled, that Congress does have this authority to remove the jurisdiction of federal courts over certain classes of cases, and in one that was very similar to this one in the Civil War. I'm perfectly willing to accept the proposition, as I did er earlier, that uh, all of the litigation on this question uh, has been on questions of statutory interpretation. But I also said that there are constitutional limits to all congressional power. That, that is the uncharted territory that we're going to talk about. It is true uh, that, the, uh, the, that Article 3 says 
that the Supreme Court has uh, public jurisdiction subject to exceptions regulations uh, that Congress will make. And it also, it also says that we can have federal courts uh, if Congress sets them up. So theoretically, you can say uh, Congress can uh, change its mind on all the federal courts, take them all away, uh, and uh, also make uh, some exceptions. Uh, to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction from the state courts. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe, maybe so much exception, there's nothing left. Uh, but they certainly could make exceptions like this if they wanted to. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, I, I, I don't, th I don't, the, the court that decided, McCardle decided it in the context of another route to get into the, to get to the Supreme Court. And indeed, I forget how many years later, but just a few, a case came up to the Supreme Court under the same statute, and they say, yeah, we do have jurisdiction here because it didn't come up. It was, it was an original writ of habeas corpus filed in the Supreme Court. And they said, well, Congress didn't destroy that. So there was still another route. Uh, what Congress did here, don't forget, is to cut off all Article Three review uh, in, in, in both of these statutes. And that's the question. To what extent can the Congress just totally cut it off uh, for, for, no matter what happens? In, uh, I, I, I misspoke. They didn't cut it off totally, but we've been talking about it. John's position says they could cut it all off. Uh, we'll point out later that the, uh, both, both statutes do have some, I don't know, limited, it may be limited, and maybe, maybe it isn't, but we, we can talk about what uh, Congress left the courts uh, uh, after that. So my, my, my own position is that uh, at a minimum, Anyone who is under executive detention, and that's what we're talking about at Guantanamo, uh, has a constitutional right to some review, that's all I want to say at this point, by an Article III court. Uh, and, and, and when I say an Article III court, I mean one in contrast to just a military commission. That's, that's an Article I court. I mean, they don't have life. I mean, they, they, they got nothing. They're, they're members of the military. No, no, I mean, they, they really, they, they're very little the uh, judges in, in court uh, of, uh, in, in these military commissions. Uh, they're, they're selected in a totally different process. They can be removed. Uh, I, I take it if uh, the president uh, doesn't uh, uh, like the uh, political decisions that the uh, members of a military commission are undertaking, they can fire them. Uh, it could happen, even in, you know, respect to U.S. attorneys. Uh, so so it, it, it might even happen there. Uh, so I, I think an you're entitled to an Article Three, uh, a, a, a person with a lifetime appointment uh, who can render independent decisions. So that's that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I think that's that's Jesse's position. That's not. Uh, I would say that's probably the uh, majority position amongst most academics uh, in the law schools of America today. It is not consistent as with any most of the any most anything that most law professors agree today with reality and history. <laughs> so the first thing I have in mind, it's never been the case, right, that federal courts have jurisdiction over every question arising under federal law when those laws benefit individuals. So uh, you know today we're familiar with the idea of federal question jurisdiction that the courts exercise jurisdiction over every question arising under federal law. That statute providing that jurisdiction did not exist until 1875. 
So for the first 100 years of the Republic, there was no general right to go to federal court to have every question of federal law adjudicated. Still, today, there are some areas where there is no full federal court jurisdiction over federal issues. Take the diversity statute. The federal diversity statute clearly is an area where the federal courts do not exercise the full authority that you would think it might have under the Constitution if you were to take this broader view. To narrow it to this point about executive uh, detention, it's also not the case that historically uh, the United States has ever allowed its courts to grant full rights to people whenever held by the executive branch. Think about World War II. In World War II, the United States detained over a million prisoners of war. There are no cases of all those prisoners of war bringing habeas corpus challenges in federal courts. In fact, many hundreds of thousands were brought back to the United States for detention. There were camps in the United States, in California. It was remarkable if you ever look at the history of these camps. Uh, I wasn't aware of it until I started looking at this subject, but there were these uh, uh, German prisoners in camps in California who were treated uh, very fairly. They were allowed to check themselves out during the day and on their honor were expected to come back at night and they would perform jobs during the day. They were very loosely guarded. None of them were bringing habeas corpus right, uh, cases seeking their release. They probably didn't have to because they seemed to already have been released. Um, it's also the case that, uh, and I really think that the real difference is not citizenship. Before they put you in <laughs> Well, we're not fighting Germans anymore either. They couldn't put up a fight against most anything now. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> we'll get to the French. <laughs> no, but uh, in all seriousness, no, the, the real thing is that, the real issue is that these rights of federal habeas corpus rights over federal jurisdiction, which are so important to our criminal justice system, are really unknown when the United States is at war. So think about the Civil War. Right? Under Jesse's theory, every prisoner in the Civil War should have been able to bring a writ of habeas corpus. Every person captured in the Civil War was an American citizen. Right? I think Lincoln's whole theory of the Civil War is that they could not secede and not give up their citizenship. There are no cases of them all bringing and successfully winning writes the writ of habeas corpus. Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus on his own, but even after the end of the Civil War, they were not permitted to bring uh, secrets of habeas corpus. Congress and other statutes cut some of that off, as I described earlier. The courts did not then return and say, but that's unconstitutional. Rather, uh, especially in wartime, Congress has this authority, which it has used to ensure that our own civilian courts are not used against us to provide a form for uh, prisoners to try to win their release. It may be true uh, that uh, my view is in the majority among academics. Indeed, <laughs> majority puts it mildly. Uh, but I want to say I also think that my, my view is among the majority of the present members of the United States Supreme Court. Now, maybe not every uh, every aspect of it, which I want to review in a, in a minute or so, uh, but uh, the, the court held uh, just about four years ago in the Hamdi case that if you have a an American citizen who is being held as an enemy combatant, an unlawful, not a prisoner of war, but an un, I'll call him an unlawful enemy combatant, uh, this is the fellow who uh, was an American citizen caught in Afghanistan, uh, brought to Guantanamo, and when they discovered he was an American citizen, they put him into the United, they, they brought him into the United States. Uh, and uh, they, they, they held in his case that the due process clause gives him some right, uh, some right uh, to challenge uh, his 
characterization, his detention as an unlawful enemy combatant. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, say, oh, no, you know, I was just there, you know, sightseeing. Uh, and and uh, he claimed that uh, he uh, was picked up, he was picked up uh, by the Taliban, I think, and sold to somebody, so they, they were trying to, uh, they, they were trying to uh, do something. So, so that's number one. Uh, five justices of the Supreme Court, more than five. Uh, he was an American citizen, he was held on American territory. Right. More than five. I think it, it was, it, it, indeed, it was eight. Uh, only Justice Thomas uh, dissented from the due process or, or, or from, from the constitutional ruling, one way or another. Now, let me, let me just quickly outline what, what I have to say. I certainly, it is not my view that uh, an Article III judge uh, is, you have a constitutional right to an Article III judge in every question under federal law. No. I mean, it's perfectly plain that the Congre Congress has substantial regulatory authority over, uh, over the federal court system. Uh, indeed, I don't even think, I, I'm only talking about individual constitutional rights. That's number one. This is not a, uh, a, a diversity case, as, you, as, as, as was mentioned. It's not a statutory interpretation case. Uh, it is an individual constitutional right. All right? And I don't even think that every uh, John is trying to pillar me with the prisoners of war. Now let me be very clear. So I want to say it's not every executive detention that I would, I would, we would go that far. Uh, there are different kinds of detentions. Uh, so far as prisoners of war is concerned, I don't think that I would not change the rule one bit. What you're talking about is a conventional prisoner of war, captured on the battlefield, uh, uh, conceitedly uh, fighting against uh, the enemy and so forth. And I, I would say they, they, they have absolutely no uh, uh, rights to go into federal courts. That is, they are, they are protected by the Geneva Convention and by the laws of war and various other federal treaties. That means uh, not simply, well it means two things. Uh, that, 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 first of all, they can't be interrogated. We've all seen the movies, you know, name, rank, and serial number. That's all you have to do. Uh, that is not, that, no one takes the view uh, that that's all that's being done to the persons being detained on Guantanamo. Indeed, it's perfectly, I mean, we, it's, 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 the justification is that they're getting information uh, from uh, a lot of these people, and I don't doubt it, uh, nonetheless. Uh, uh, so, so, and, and uh, they're not, your ordinary prisoners of war, and uh, you know that the conventions provide for this. It provides for monitoring. There is civilized treatment given uh, to prisoners of war. I leave that subtle. Uh, the second category, and, and that, so that's an easy category on the one side. The second category is if you're being tried for a war crime, all right, uh, which means you could end up imprisoned uh, after uh, after the trial. Uh, I would say that you have some right to review. Uh, by an Article III judge. I think that's guaranteed by the Due Process Clause, probably bolstered uh, by the habeas corpus provision, which, if time permits, we may talk about uh, a little bit. And uh, uh, I know of no case, uh, uh, apart from Johnson against Eisentrager, all right? And you know, that's a perfectly good case. If I were in the administration uh, uh, writing these uh, procedures and so forth at the time that they were drafted, the time roughly at the Patriot Act, uh, or even before, well, all about the same time, right after 9-11, uh, I gave 
I gave public talks, not knowing much about this, but I was asked. And I figured, I'd, no, I, but I, you know, I thought I'll learn something about this. And uh, I read these World War II cases, and my position was that everything the administration is doing has some good precedent behind it. That's absolutely true. Ex-party Quirin is another one, uh, and Eisentrager uh, were, were, were major major decisions. Uh, you know, this is this is 60 years later. Uh, there are lots of different rules uh, that have uh, come into being since then. I'm persuaded that a majority of the Supreme Court uh, would, uh, would would hold that as well. Okay, the last category, and I'll, I'll be quick about it, is. Those people, they're not, being they're not conventional prisoners of war, and they're not being tried for any military crime, uh, any war crime. They are simply being held, uh, and they say, we are not enemy, unlawful enemy combatants. We were grabbed by the Taliban and sold uh, to uh, somebody in order to do that. And uh, a number of these people are claiming that. Maybe not very many. I don't know. Uh, it, it seems to there I would distinguish between aliens and citizens, uh, and uh, whether you're in the United States or outside the United States. Although I put Guantanamo, as I said, within the territory of the United States. Uh, but but uh, I, I would say if, if you're an American citizen and you're being held like that, and I think the government more or less operated this way. What was this? He's just uh, the, the fellow from here, from, from the Marin. Uh, uh, Lynn, that's right. Just uh, uh, okay. Uh, they, they brought him back and they tried him in an American court. Uh, I, I think they have a right to some Article Three review. You can't hold them forever and say you're an unlawful enemy combatant. And the court held in uh, in, in, in Hamdi uh, that that is a constitutional right. All right. So I extended one step beyond Hamdi. I uh, Hamdi. I, I extended to aliens. Uh, who are within the territory of the United States. Uh, I, I would give them that right. Why? Well, uh, look, the, 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 this is not uh, written someplace, uh, you know, in, in the Constitution. That's what John's going to tell you. Uh, he, he's gonna, and maybe they didn't think about this in the, the late 18th century. Uh, but uh, it, 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 it does seem to me uh, that if they are uh, held within the United States, or except they're not held within the United States, there is a long tradition uh, that aliens, out, that the Constitution doesn't follow uh, aliens uh, outside the United States, even though they're allegedly being mistreated uh, by United States officers. Well, this, this debate is very useful because um, Jesse's very honest, and when you debate a lot of people about this subject, um, they will say they should be right for him. They never explain where that right comes from. And Jesse's being honest and, and resorting to the last refuge of the academic scoundrel, which is the due process clause. <laughs> Have something you think is right, you think something is fair, where else are you going to find it? Where do you find the right to privacy, right to abortion, other non-textual rights recognized by the Supreme Court? It's got to be the due process clause. And at least Jesse's being open and honest and saying he's not pulling this principle from the cases, he's pulling it from the same place the court has found another a great number of other made-up rights. Um, let's look and see whether... <laughs> let's look and see where... Uh, whether this comports with our notions of due process, right? Because the due process clause, if you um, take a look at the court's jurisprudence of it, says the due process clause ought to be interpreted in terms of what Americans historically, traditionally think ought to be uh, the process that's due. Now, he's perfectly right. POWs 
uh, traditionally have uh, governed by Geneva Conventions and never received any right to a hearing. But then, Jesse, the remarkable thing about Jesse's position, I think, is that he would say for people who are illegal combatants, people who actually uh, violate the laws of war, who fight the way al-Qaeda does, right, without wearing uniforms, with launching surprise attacks on civilians, ought to get more process than the prisoners of war who follow all the laws of war, right? He would say if you are a member of al-Qaeda, you're an illegal enemy combatant, you actually have a right to federal court. If you follow all the rules, you don't get a right to federal court. This is sort of a strange incentive system that it creates. Um, historically, this has never been true. If you were an illegal enemy combatant, and they've existed for many years, I mean, the most uh, sort of well-known example are pirates, uh, where the classics are illegal enemy combatants. If you think about the classic non-state uh, fighters who waged war against the civilized world, they received no due process rights historically. Um, and if you think about it, how could you fight a war if the due process clause really applied to illegal enemy combatants? Would we have a due process hearing either ex post or ex ante to determine whether there was enough evidence to launch a Hellfire missile from a drone at a certain target? Because uh, is that covered by the due process clause? It certainly is if the police use force against a criminal suspect, right? The due process clause requires compensation if the police used force inappropriately. Would we have that same standard in the use of force uh, if we're at war? For these reasons, I think most people, most judges, historically recognize that the due process clause just doesn't apply at all to wartime operations in the period of military conflict. <coughs> I do agree with Jesse on this one point, though, that all of this history and tradition and practice may provide little basis for predicting what the justices are going to do in the future. Um, there's clearly, I think, four justices on the Supreme Court, uh, you know, Stevens, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Souter, who want to extend the due process clause and want to extend federal jurisdiction to the activities of the government in the war on terror. There, I think it's clear there are four justices who don't, and it's really Justice Kennedy in play, who nobody knows. Well, it's not, I don't, I, that's not, right. it's not that nobody knows what he wants to do, because I think even Justice Kennedy might know, but I'm not sure if he knows yet. But Justice Kennedy, and if you look at all these cases, just look at the a series of cases. Ever since Justice O'Connor left the court, Justice Kennedy has moved into the middle and is casting votes sometimes with the four liberals, sometimes with the four conservatives. I think it's quite unpredictable what he's going to do. But I think like Justice O'Connor, this has had the effect of increasing uh, Justice Kennedy's power on the court and through the court's power, power over national policy on a whole range of issues including global warming and abortion uh, and so on. So I, 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 Jesse may be right. Jesse uh, watches Justice Kennedy's votes much more closely like a hawk than I do. It actually pains me to look at them. But Jesse enjoys <laughs> watching Justice Kennedy's activities. So he might be right that that's what Justice Kennedy will do in the end. Um, I think, uh, should we just we take five more minutes or before we open up to questions? Sure. Yeah, why don't we take five more minutes? Because there is this other issue we haven't got to yet, which is the habeas corpus provision, uh, uh, the habeas corpus issue. Because even if uh, our arguments about uh, the jurisdiction of the courts and its regulation by Congress resolve one way or the other, there's still a habeas corpus issue. Whether the habeas corpus provision requires that individuals held in this war on terrorism get a right the federal court, putting aside whatever statute Congress passes. And this is very interesting. I knew, I knew very little about this uh, before I wrote this article, but apparently in American cases from uh, the Marshall Court on, 
the court has said that there is no constitutional right to habeas corpus beyond that which Congress has created, at least as of 1789. And so the question, I think, would be, is there, in 1789, would uh, the framers, would the people who wrote the first habeas corpus statutes have thought that this right extended to enemy prisoners in war? I think that the history shows that this is not the case, that there was no historical record of enemy prisoners having this right under the habeas corpus statutes, either in England or the United States during this time, so that there's no real habeas corpus right that's constitutionally compelled uh, to allow these kinds of lawsuits. Well, I got a lot of points here, but I'm not going to cover them in three to four minutes. But that's all right. Uh, it may be true uh, that the uh, due process clause is the last refuge of academic scoundrels. Uh, but, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's the last refuge for only academic scoundrels. Uh, or academics or scoundrels. The fact of the matter is, first of all, I want to be clear. Uh, there's a big difference between being held as a prisoner of war, for whom I give no Article Three review, and being held in Guantanamo, uh, despite the fact, and either prosecuted, and then sent up for uh, 10 years, let's say. And uh, by the way, if it's less than 10 years, even the current statute doesn't give any federal review. That's for a war crime. That's a, you can't prosecute prisoners of war for war crimes. All right. Uh, that's why they're the prisoners of war. You can't interrogate prisoners of war. Uh, so, so uh, I don't know. Yes, it may be that they get habeas corpus, that Al Qaeda gets habeas corpus, and uh, the prisoners of war don't. Uh, but um, who would you rather be uh, if you were sitting around? in an American camp. Would you rather be a prisoner of war under the Geneva Convention, or would you rather be a suspected al-Qaeda on Guantanamo? Uh, maybe that answers the question. I also think that most judges do not agree. I, I, I disagree with John. I don't think most judges do agree uh, that there is no constitutional right extending to these prisoners. I, I think that a, a majority of the present court, and maybe more than a majority, eight justices held that the Constitution gives an American citizen held as al-Qaeda, let's just use that for an unlawful enemy combatant, uh, if held on American territory has a due process right to some sort of hearing. Okay? Now they didn't, they didn't fully say a judicial hearing, I should say that. Although uh, both ends of the court, with the exception of Justice Thomas, he was off uh, uh, by himself. Justice Stevens and Scalia, now those are strange bedfellows. Uh, they both said, if you're holding someone as an unlawful enemy combatant, which means that you've committed war crimes and you're not holding a prisoner of war, you just can't keep holding them, either prosecute them, uh, unless there's a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. All right? We could talk about whether this is a legitimate suspension or not. Uh, if you want, you can even read the article uh, when, it, when, when it comes out. We, 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 we debate. Uh, about that. Uh, but um, to say uh, that there's, uh, to, to, well, anyway, uh, they said you can't do it. Now, I'm extending that. I'm the first one to, uh, to agree that I'm extending that. I think five would extend it. They'd extend it to aliens, and they'd extend it to Guantanamo. 
particularly if you tried to. Can you imagine if they prosecuted someone there uh, and uh, uh, sentenced them to death? I don't know if you can do that under the uh, under, under the thing. And and, uh, and the court. This is not a situation uh, in, uh, in in which. Uh, habeas corpus has ever been denied with the exception of Johnson against Eisentrager, and I don't think they were sentenced to death. Uh, it's there. You know, so is Plessy against Ferguson. Uh, I'm quite serious about that. Uh, I, I, uh, Justice Scalia said about one of these cases that are there. I don't deny that they're there. And, and, and the administration, I've never denied it. I give public talk saying they have every right to rely upon them. But even Justice Scalia said, ex-party Quirin, I, I believe it was about Quirin, says, not, not, one of the best, uh, not one of the best days for the United States Supreme Court. I want to say one word uh, about habeas corpus. Uh, I just don't think uh, that uh, it, it, is, it is true uh, that the courts have held, the Supreme Court, has, that the law in the Supreme Court is that you have no constitutional right to habeas corpus beyond that that existed in 1789. All right? I think we read the cases differently. We talk about it in the article. It's not just me reading the cases differently. People who know something about it. John knows a lot about it. Uh, but people who also know something about it take it directly contrary to position of the very language that he cites. Uh, but even if you go back, and I'm going to quit after this, it's to 1789, I think it is true that habeas corpus existed particularly uh, for, uh, in, in, in the English common law, for executive detention. Now, was it executive detention in time of war? No. Uh, I mean, not that I know of, anyway. But I don't know the opposite, either. So, I leave it alone. So, uh, our speakers are going to take some questions, and what I'd suggest is uh, uh, perhaps to begin with, we uh, alternate the recipient of the question. Um, and so I don't you, mind. You don't have to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't uh, uh, you raise your hand if you've got a question for, for Professor Yu? I've got a question for both. Oh, okay. Both, both counts as one or the other. Uh, <laughs> and it's more a historical question then. Thanks for asking that question. That was the point I wanted to make when Jesse was speaking. Was he, he didn't said, set me up? For no, no. I, I, we have, there's no coordination beforehand. If, uh, if you paid off Larry, you'd probably do the opposite. <laughs> uh, no. The question was. Uh, the point was that Jesse said, "Well, could you imagine if a military court sentenced someone to death and wouldn't let there be a trial? You know, an American military appeal. court. Right. American to and that happened not, quite a bit. Not, not just Nuremberg, but there were." hundreds of military commission cases after Nuremberg throughout occupied Germany where many people were sentenced to death and there was no right of appeal. Eisentrager was part of those cases trying to seek appeal. He's, Jesse's right though, Eisentrager itself did not involve people sentenced to death. Asia, there were more death penalties in the Tokyo war crimes tribunals, which I believe were only American. They were not uh, this sort of German 
British, I'm sorry, British, not German, British, French, and American production. Were they contested in the courts? No, they never got the right to appeal. So that's interesting. You're quite right. There was uh, General Yamashita who was uh, tried in the Philippines, sentenced to death. He got a right to appeal. There were many other people uh, sentenced to death in Japan who, by American military courts, who did not get a right to appeal because they were not within uh, American territory. Well, you meant, was, was, was there a right to appeal at Nuremberg? To federal courts? Yes. No. Or no. Nuremberg itself had, I don't believe that there was an appeals process. Okay. Go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I think he is stunningly conflicted questions, but how much of this is just because we have jurisprudence that comes from regular, real, normal war, like we all get at war, you know, Pearl Harbor, Europe, da, da, da. and then we have the regular, normal crimes, you know, that we are all familiar with, and the world we're in now is different. Okay, so it's really blurred. I think there are many, many differences. I think they cut both ways. Uh, I think, look, I didn't say we should release all these prisoners from Guantanamo. I was only saying that they have a right to be heard by an Article III court in, 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 some, in some meaningful way. And uh, no, I don't think, I really don't think that uh, Congress ought to have the last word. Now, Look, I think that's essentially John's view, and it's a perfectly respectable view. But I don't agree with that. I think that I think the major justification for federal courts and for the United States Supreme Court in particular for having this awesome power of judicial review is to protect those who do not get adequate protection in the in the political process. That's in Congress and in the executive branch, and I think. In case, in, in, in this case, I don't know if it's any greater than the Second World War, for example, but, but, it, but when you have it in wartime, and you have people who are prisoners who are accused of terrorist acts, all right, uh, then it, it seems to me if they're going to get any, you know, the, the chances of having unfairness against someone who didn't do it, all right, uh, someone who, and I, I'm, t I'm talking about people who are tried for crimes or who say, I had nothing to do with this. I don't belong here. Uh, it seems to me that there, uh, the Congress is very untrustworthy uh, in, in uh, giving them adequate protection. And the Supreme Court ought to hear it. Now, how much deference should they give to the military decision? I don't talk to that issue. Uh, oh, no constitutional rights are absolute. Uh, and uh, what... What, there's going to be a weight on the other side. Is this a very weighty uh, counter consideration to pay respect to the judgment of the political branches? Maybe so, uh, but you just don't you, you don't create a situation in which the charge is you're taking away my constitutional rights, and now you're also taking my uh, uh, opportunity away to have a federal court agree with me. That goes too far. I, I think part of what is happening is that Jesse's uh, appeals are to notions of due process and constitutional law which apply in peacetime and apply primarily to the criminal justice system. So when he says 
everyone detained by the executive branch ought to have a chance to go to court, challenge the legality, force the government to explain why they're being held. That makes a lot of sense if you're in peacetime, you're talking about civilians who've committed crimes. We've never had that system apply in war before. So I, I agree with your, excuse me, I agree with your, the, the, I think the, the basic thrust of your question, which is that this is really causing us to decide whether we're in war or whether this is crime. This is something that our country is terribly divided over and has been since the 9-11 attacks. Um, in all of these cases at the Supreme Court we've discussed, uh, you know, again, the majority of law professors, there are a lot of law professors file briefs at the Supreme Court saying this is really crime. 9-11 was not really an act of war. I don't think Jesse shares that view, but a lot of people who make these arguments do. Um, and if it were crime, which is the way we handled terrorism before 9-11, everybody, both parties did, then we would use due process and we would use hearings and the, the criminal process. But in the, if it's war, we just haven't used those due process notions before because I think they fundamentally interfere with the way war is fought. Now, uh, some people would say uh, this is some kind of hybrid that sits in between the two. And if it is, then it seems to me which branch of government ought to be the one that figures out the system that ought to be applied to this kind of hybrid type of conflict we've never seen before. I would think the courts would be the least well-positioned branch of the three to make the kinds of cost-benefit choices you would have to in order to figure out the right rules. Um, traditionally in war, the president and Congress are the ones who have. Now, again, I think this is part of the appeal to the criminal justice system. We're used to, in the criminal justice system, the courts basically deciding all these questions of process and so on, but not in wartime. And so I would think that given that this is the first time we face this kind of war or this kind of challenge, we're not really sure about the costs and benefits of any particular rule we're going to choose in order to run it. It would seem to me you want the branches which are much better at these kinds of decisions about policy to make those calls rather than a branch which is supposed to be neutral and detached and really decides cases, decides issues only case by case. Would you apply that to American citizens? Well, I, I think, again, it's up to Congress. And I think in the Civil War, that's what happened. Right? Congress and the President decided. Um, I'm, I guess my question is about the comparison between the enemies and the Vietnam and the war. As I understand it, prisoners of war are soldiers of other countries engaged in And they're not being held awaiting trial, they're being held awaiting peace for the United States to deal with the country that sent them over in the first place. Whereas the United States is claiming the right not only to hold these people, but to trial them and decide their fate as individuals while the war is still going on, unilaterally. So I'm kind of wondering why. Yeah, let me make one small correction, I think, in what Jesse said, and I think what you just said is, even if you're a prisoner of war under the Geneva Conventions, you can still be tried for war crimes. So uh, you, the Geneva Conventions only say you can only be tried for certain kinds of war crimes. Uh, so it's, it's not this clear distinction between Geneva Convention, you're just held, uh, but if you're an al-Qaeda terrorist, you're tried on an individualized basis. What, what, Both can happen under one or the other. So if you think about World War II, all the people we tried at Nuremberg and the commissions in Germany, Japan afterwards were all POWs under the Geneva Conventions, but they were also tried for war crimes. Um, I do think that 
the other point you made, though, really does point to a big difference. And one of the difficulties of this is you said, well, under the Geneva Convention system, you're held for the entire conflict. You're not being tried. You're not being held individually guilty of anything, right? And there's no tribunal finding you guilty. You're just held because you're a member of the enemy. You're not supposed to go back into the fight. And that's a traditional justification, justification for Geneva, for detention. But it's also the justification. Well, it's also the justification for detention of people in the war on terrorism, too. It's not, so everybody who's being held at Guantanamo Bay is not being charged and convicted and found guilty of a war crime. They're being detained for the same reason people are detained in any war. I think the real criticism is most people say that that's not right, that all the people at Guantanamo Bay ought to be tried and ought to have some individualized finding of guilt. Because they're, but I mean, Jesse may agree, but I think many people who are critical of the administration do think that um, because they should not be held until the conflict is over the way the Geneva Convention folks are held. You know, there, there, there's a whole range of hypothetical situations that you can talk about, all right? If Al Qaeda, if the people in Guantanamo were not interrogated, I mean, they, they are not being held, I don't believe they are being held simply to keep them out of the war, although it's true that they released a few, usually at the, early on at the behest of the, you know, the, their country of origin, and they went back and they were captured again, uh, fighting in the, either Afghanistan uh, or, or uh, maybe in, really in Afghanistan, I think. They are being held there for interrogation. Uh, that's what, the, and, 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 you know, that, that, that's what all of this, all of these charges are connected with. It's not that they're holding him and punishing him and they're not giving him good food. Uh, it's that they are using a variety of techniques uh, that uh, are there to elicit information. I pass no judgment on that whatever, all right, in this discussion. I am only saying that they say, you can't do this to me, not because it's wrong, it's because I am not an unlawful enemy combatant. That's what these people are saying. They're not unlawful enemy combatants. They deserve not... Uh, you treat them as prisoners of war, I give them no review. Uh, I, I mean, I would give them no Article Three review. There are procedures under the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war. Someone claims that they're not this, you know, they, they set up a couple of officers and they find out. And, you know, what's the point of keeping them? Uh, if uh, there's real doubt that uh, they've had any, that they're there by mistake. Uh, but, but this is very different. Just one I pose a question to you, John. Uh, is there a limitation that arises out of the fact that you need to be labeled an enemy combatant in the first place? And is there, uh, what is the counter justification to the notion that uh, some kind of review outside of the military justice system of that that threshold determination uh, is warranted. So it's yeah. the same thing as if you're you know trying for a civil litigator trying to get in and out in or out of federal court. Uh, how do you how do you address that yeah. particular point? So I guess the, so. Then the distinction or the problem is not between uh, POWs under the Geneva Conventions or illegal combatants and illegal combatants. It's just whether you are a civilian, like you're you're a BBC reporter. Uh, captured in Afghanistan by mistake, and you say, I'm a civilian, I'm not any kind of combatant. Um, again, under the laws of war, there's no right to go to federal civilian, any kind of civilian court system. 
you, there's a system within the military justice system itself to decide whether you should be released or not. But you can't and be questioned. I don't know about that. But you, you have this right to a hearing. No, no, I mean, you can be questioned. It's just you, can't be, you don't have to answer. <laughs> but, I mean, but the basic point is there is a tribunal system under the Geneva Conventions. Each country is put, military is supposed to set one up. The United States has them. That's, these are these combatant status review tribunals. What happens and you if get, they don't answer in Guantanamo? This is what it was like in the faculty lounge. When this is when I started saying, let's just write it out. <laughs> Stop interrupting me. <laughs> so but just in answer to Dave's question, that, there is that the combatant status review tribunals that the Pentagon has set up are exactly the ones that you would have under the Geneva Conventions for this decision. But in neither case, historically or under the treaties or the laws of war, have you ever had a right to go to a civilian court for that determination? Let me uh, put to uh, Jesse Chofer the uh, follow-up question to that, which is, let's say that uh, there is some kind of satisfactory process, uh, posit that there is access to civilian court or some kind of review of this initial determination of enemy combatant status. That process is completed. A, uh, a finding that has passed muster with an Article Three court of some kind is made. At that point, what is is there a uh, continuing access to habeas corpus once there is a determination of enemy combatant status that is uh, satisfactory in your view with uh, due process? Would you have then continuing due process access? I'm well, if they, if they if they made new allegations, maybe, but but if, if they if, if they get a Department of Defense created hearing like this, what are they CSOs, whatever they are, these courts that have been they've been set up that you're reading about today, where these characters in Guantanamo are given hearings there before a military group. What what is CSRTs? What does it stand for? Combatant Status Review Tribunal. All right, so so they're given one of these hearings, okay? And a and some Article Three court. That's all. at this point. That's all I'm saying. Some Article Three court takes a look at it and they say, Yeah, we think this is a good. This is not a procedure that runs a substantial risk of an erroneous conclusion. Right? That's a standard I would use. Now, I didn't make that up. Uh, that's from the, that, that. That is the right that you get for retroactive application in the criminal justice system of habeas corpus, all right? But, it, it, uh, you know, that, 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 that's a pretty, if there is some, if the, if the procedure is such that it protects against a substantial risk of an erroneous determination, uh, then, then I would say, well, they can be held. Uh, and if they're unlawful enemy combatants, then they can be interrogated. Now, whether they have, now if they say these, uh, the interrogation that is taking place uh, violates a separate constitutional right, uh, then I would say yes, in the end they have some right to go back to an Article Three court. Or if they want to make them prisoners of war, they can do that. Uh, we have to have a lot of prisoners of war in Afghanistan, don't we? No, I don't think so. None? But we don't hold them anymore. We don't hold them anymore. I think the government the Afghan government. Well, we, so we give them back to the we give them back to the Afghan government. I mean, or wherever they wherever they're from. I, I just make I, 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 you know, I'm not. I'm not. I want to be very clear how limited. The, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any sympathy. I think most of these. I think they're probably getting a lot of very important information in Guantanamo. I do. 
Uh, I, I don't know about that I approve of all the techniques, uh, uh, but I certainly don't approve of attempting to get that information from someone who can demonstrate that there's no good reason to hold them there. There's, a, so. there's two points about the, the due process clauses. Just as one of the goals of the due process clause is to reduce the chances of erroneous government decisions. But that's not the only goal of the due process clause. That's the only value. You also, because I'm sure many of you who practice law know, it's generally thought not to be possible to get, have a government process that yields 100% accurate results. Our criminal justice system is one that tries to get there, right? The proof beyond a reasonable doubt is thought to be something like 99% certainty. But when you're outside the criminal justice system, you have to balance uh, the desire to reduce errors against the cost that those procedures create and the government's interest at stake, right? We don't ask in wartime for there to be perfection, right? We have bombings of wrong targets. Sometimes we have bombings where we kill civilians instead of the intended targets. We make mistakes or we bomb the Chinese embassy in Kosovo by mistake, we're told, right? That's not, that's part of war. It's part of war that mistakes happen, and generally in war we accept a higher level of error precisely because the desire to increase procedures that would create this kind of certainty that Jesse wants are too expensive and get in front of the actual mission or government's purpose in conducting the war in the first place. Remember what Reagan said? There he goes again. <laughs> I'm asking only for a limited review. That's all. I'm not saying how much deference you give the government on these determinations. I'm not asking for proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm just saying something, some participation by some neutral uh, government agency, and that's an Article Three court. Uh, let's hear one question for uh, uh, John Yu, and then we'll have one question for Jesse Chopper. Impeachment was actually more used in the British system 
to punish and remove executive cabinet members for bad mistakes in war. So there are these uh, examples where um, it's hard to believe that the Dutch were able to pull this off, but at the time, the Dutch were a powerful nation, and they actually sent a fleet up the Thames River and burnt the British fleet right in London in the 17th century. And the Parliament impeached all the ministers of the cabinet, every single minister of the cabinet at that time. There's no, you know, it started striking in com- contrast with the debate we had over Clinton, right? Whether the impeachment ought to be used for serious crimes versus minor crimes. Impeachment used to be used just for no crimes at all, for just screwing up in policy, right? And I think Congress can do that in this case. You know, if you're worried about the executive branch going too far, I think Congress certainly has that authority if it feels the president's gotten out of control and won't obey funding cutoffs and won't obey reductions in the size of the military. So I do think that this is, now there's always this problem, what happens if the president and Congress collude together and create a, you know, it's not just the executive and Congress, it's just the president and Congress colluding together. I don't personally think these appeals to the courts are going to work if the president and Congress are really engaged in this kind of activity. I, I tend to think that this, has never, that this has never happened in American history and that our political system really ensures that it won't. But, you know, if you want to guard against this one or five percent chance it could ever happen, I don't think it's going to be the courts that are going to stop it from happening. Last question for Dean Chopra. Yes, sir. Um, I've gotten a little bit of the there were no wars in incorrection when all these aid strikes be available to all the hundreds of thousands, and millions of Confederate prisoners? No, as I say, if they're just prisoners, uh, then uh, I would give them no habeas corpus rights, even if, if they're being held as conventional prisoners of war, subject to the rules of Geneva Convention, the laws of war, and uh, other treaties, uh, then I would say the procedures there are adequate. They are simply being held for the duration of the war. It only is triggered by being prosecuted for a war crime or by an allegation that you are unjustifiably being held. Was there a war? Was that, yeah, I think there was a war. I think this is a war. I mean, it's a different kind of war. Maybe different rules are called for. This is a war. I mean, how could anyone be, uh, indeed, even, and look, I'm a, uh, I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I want to say this, even a Democratic Congress is not complaining. Uh, well, they, they want to do something about Guantanamo. Their complaint is with Iraq, uh, not with Al-Qaeda. Uh, so, well, right or wrong, if it's very different. The question, the question I'm raising is whether the Civil War was actually a war. And we're, we're I think he's the one, I mean, I, I don't, I would, if it wasn't a war by, as de- defined by international law, then it was de facto a war, in my judgment, and I'd come to that conclusion. Just as I come to the conclusion that Guantanamo is de facto an American possession. And I live in there. Last word. Let me, uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, uh, witnessing uh, 
uh, Professor Yu breaking some new ground on the impeachment power, and uh, <laughs> uh, Dean Choper uh, uh, really doing uh, an incredible job expanding the reach of footnote four of Caroline products. Uh, very, uh, uh, no, but in all seriousness, uh, we are very grateful to our speakers uh, for a very informative program. Uh, and I think that it is incumbent upon all of us as lawyers or citizens, uh, federalists or non-federalists, to be educated on this. In that regard, uh, hopefully, uh, in spite of the battery thing flashing on here, uh, we will get the podcast up at the Federalist Society website, which is www.fed-soc.org. Uh, our chapter also has a uh, budding website, sffederalist.blogspot.com, uh, which, uh, 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 you know, you, you look at it at your peril, but uh, uh, what I hope to do there is uh, put the draft paper that uh, professor, professors have worked on uh, up at that site, and hopefully I'll be able to get a link to it on the Federalist Society website so you can look at their academic work on these topics. Uh, last thing, if you don't have it already, on the way out, in addition to MCLE materials and sign-ups, uh, I do have uh, a few copies of the D.C. Circuit's opinion on the constitutionality of the Military Commissions Act, uh, and that's an informative uh, decision because there is a majority in favor of its constitutionality. There was a dissent uh, holding that it was unconstitutional, and uh, presumably in short order, the Supreme Court will be weighing in on just those questions. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, we will have an event on May 8th with uh, Professor Ralph Rossum, who I'm sure no one has heard of. Uh, but Professor Rossum has written a book on the jurisprudence of Justice Scalia. Uh, so he'll be uh, discussing uh, Justice Scalia's jurisprudence in his book. And uh, hopefully you'll make it out to that as well. Uh, look in the paper on your email for those. Uh, um, no, I, I don't. Just because he's obscured some of our audience doesn't mean he's not very worthy, uh, which is why we're having them. And hopefully uh, you'll return for that event. In any event, thank you very much, and uh, we're adjourned. Thank you.